Welcome to NephHacks, high-yield nephrology at your fingertips. This is your host, Andrew Kowalski. I'm the founder of NephHacks, and I'm also a practicing nephrologist. Please visit us at www.nephhacks.com. That's N-E-P-H-H-A-C-K-S dot com. Also, join us on our Facebook group where I'll be posting updates on our podcast as well as general updates in the field of nephrology. Let's get ready to make nephrology fun again. Hi, and welcome to NephHacks, high-yield nephrology at your fingertips. This is your host, Andrew Kowalski, founder of NephHacks. For more information, please feel free to join www.nephhacks, that's N-E-P-H-H-A-C-K-S dot com. Also, please feel free to jump on our Facebook group and join that, where I post uh, numerous updates about the new additions in nephrology some of the new topics that are out there so we can get some good discussions going on that platform as well. So hopefully you had an opportunity to listen to the autoregulation section. Some quick key points about that, autoregulation and uh, tubular glomerular feedback, right, is regulated minute to minute. So the way the flow hits the macula densa and the response with renin and the RAS system, it's minute to minute by modulating uh, afferent arterial tone. The myogenic reflex, similar, as soon as pressure is felt, the afferent arterial will either constrict or if less pressure will dilate. And neurohormonal substances, such as the sympathetic nervous system, RAS, even other compounds such as nitric oxide and prostaglandins will influence GFR and extreme disease states by changing the afferent and efferent arterioles. So now what I would like to do is like to move forward and start talking about the tubules of the kidney. Tubules of the kidney are the processing section. What I thought was really interesting is when I was a resident, I was always shocked that during a biopsy conference, when we would kind of look through what was happening, I was amazed that the glomerulus could be so damaged and yet the creatinine not look that severe, but as soon as the interstitium was damaged in the sense that you had scar tissue more than 30, 40, even 50%, then you had a substantial change in creatinine. And that's just because this is where the magic happens. So once the filtrate hits the tubules, this is where all the processing occurs, the reabsorption, the secretion, and so forth. So the tubules are key. So again, we're not going to go into a lot of depth, but I just want to cover some of the basics of the tubules. So for starters, in a typical individual, we see a GFR of about 125 mils per minute. And that's basically about 180 liters per day, which is substantial. I mean, think about how much the kidney has to process and deal with. And of that 180 liters, considering we're not urinating that much throughout the day, so it's actually quite impressive what these kidneys can do, considering 99% of all the filtrate and water is reabsorbed and only 1% is excreted. So we're basically out of a typical day, 180 liters process, we put out just under two liters of urine. Now, thinking about that, the kidney does a lot. So by doing so, it is very metabolically active. 
it has to churn out a lot of energy. It has a lot of energy that it has to use. So if you take a probe and you put it in the inner portion of the kidney, you're going to see that the O2 saturation is very low. So most of what happens is in the cortex. And with the O2 saturation being low at about 50%, the kidney requires a lot of oxygen for being so metabolically active. And if you look at some of the cells in the proximal tubule, distal tubule, um, the ascending loop of Henle, there's going to be a lot of mitochondria present. So you can imagine that if the kidney requires so much energy that any sort of change in hemodynamics that escapes the autoregulatory mechanisms that the kidney has is going to cause substantial damage, which is why usually an AKI is the first sign of any sort of organ dysfunction in the body that you're going to see, and the kidney is also the last to recover. If you take a 8-gram piece of brain tissue and you take an 8-gram piece of renal tissue, the amount of blood flow in each is staggering. So you're going to have about a liter, just under a liter of blood flow in that 8-gram piece of brain tissue, right, on average per hour, which is substantial. But you're going to see 11 liters course through that same 8-gram piece of tissue in the kidney. About 11 times what is present in the brain. It's quite fascinating. So the kidney is responsible for a lot and it deals with a lot and it's a highly metabolic charged organ. So let's start diving into these tubules. So the tubule epithelium is solely designed to reabsorb compounds and passively take in water and maintain homeostatic balance in the body fluid balance and electrolyte balance, okay? The vast majority of what drives all of this is the basolateral membrane and the sodium potassium ATPase that's present. So this is a secondary active transport that occurs. The sodium potassium ATPase continuously pumps out three sodium and brings in two potassium, thus making the intracellular environment sodium poor. This helps with a lot of these countercurrent or exchange receptors that we see on the luminal side. And we're going to talk about all the different ones throughout the tube, or at least the more popular ones that are present. So if we look at the convoluted tubule, the proximal that is, basically around 60 to 70 percent of everything that is filtered is absorbed in that small section of the nephron. So we see the bulk of phosphate reabsorption, about 80%, about 60 to 70% of sodium, therefore 60 to 70% of water, because water will passively follow sodium. We see about 50% of potassium reabsorbed there. We see about 70% of the calcium reabsorbed there. We see about a quarter of all the magnesium that's filtered reabsorbed there. And we see about 90% of the bicarbonate reabsorbed there. Also, we see glucose, pretty much all of it. We see amino acids and we see uric acid with some occasional low molecular weight proteins such as microglobulins and a couple of free light chains. So since we kind of hinted at the fact that bicarbonate is reabsorbed, this is also our only target for a diuretic. And it always boggled my mind that out of all 
the sections of the tubule, why do we only have one target in the proximal tubule considering so much is done? And I think the easiest way to explain it is because of the complexity. That affecting one receptor or one component of the proximal tubule will have significant downstream effects. While if you look at the loop of Henle, we have a key receptor, which is the sodium potassium 2 chloride, which pretty much does majority of the legwork. And that, if we knock out, will be great in terms of diuresis. And the distal convoluted tubule, same. We have a lot of paracellular you know, reabsorption that occurs, but we have one key receptor, which is the sodium chloride co-transporter. So in the proximal convoluted tubule, it gets a little messy. So we see, um, we see a sodium glucose co-transporter there where majority of the glucose is absorbed and glucose is the innocent bystander that gets sucked into the proximal tubule with sodium because sodium is going down its concentration gradient, right? It's trying to get pulled into the cell because intracellularly you're sodium deficient because of the sodium potassium ATPase. What also ends up happening is you have a sodium and hydrogen exchanger. So sodium is going to go down its concentration gradient and then hydrogen is going to be pumped out of the cell. This is key because sodium bicarbonate is filtered in the glomerulus and ends up in the proximal convoluted tubule. So what ends up happening is sodium and the sodium bicarbonate disassociates into sodium and bicarbonate. Sodium is reabsorbed, right? And then what ends up happening is you have this bicarbonate floating around. Well, in the sodium hydrogen exchanger, you have a hydrogen being spit out and with carbonic anhydrase, this forms carbonic acid. Carbonic acid then disassociates into carbon dioxide and water. Carbon dioxide is pulled into the cell, into the proximal tubule cell. It combines again with water to form carbonic uh, acid. And then it's split again into hydrogen and bicarbonate. Bicarbonate is then reabsorbed and the hydrogen is then spit out with the sodium hydrogen exchanger. So this is our recycling mechanism of bicarbonate. And this is where majority of the bicarbonate is recycled. Now, if there is a dysfunction in the proximal tubule, and there are, there are many, typically we throw them under the umbrella of a Fanconi type picture. In terms of bicarb recycling, we do see some bicarb recycling occurring in the distal convoluted tubule, which is why not all 100% of the bicarb is dealt with in the proximal tubule. So in a RTA type two, we will see the distal convoluted tubule pick up the slack a little bit. And what ends up happening is we see a tremendous amount of bicarb loss in a type two RTA. And we end up seeing a very alkalotic urine that quickly becomes acidotic. But in the flip side, we don't necessarily see that in a type one RTA. We don't see the profound acidotic urine that you would typically expect. So our target here is the carbonic anhydrase, and we use a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor, which is acetylzolamide. So acetylzolamide is often used by ophthalmologists for the treatment of glaucoma. Also, it's used for pseudotumor cerebri, and it leads to a full-blown type 2 RTA picture. It can also produce a Fanconi-type syndrome as well. Another drug that's very common that we should all be aware of is topiramate. Topiramate is a common anti-epileptic drug, but it's even a more common 
migraine prophylactic drug. It has great results with migraine prophylaxis. The problem is, is that it causes a type 2 RTA. Furthermore, tenofovir. Tenofovir is a very popular anti-HIV medication and it can also cause substantial proximal tubule dysfunction. Another thing that I want to point out is Fanconi syndrome. So Fanconi syndrome is a dysfunction in the proximal tubule. And what we end up seeing is we see a disruption in the reabsorption of sodium, glucose, amino acids, phosphate, uric acid. So these patients become glucose, they have significant glucosuria, they have hypophosphatemia, and they have hypouricemia. So this question pops up a lot. And if you see an individual, either in practice or on a question, and this individual is or has glucosuria, does not have diabetes, and is not on a new SGLT2 inhibitor, well, then the only possible reason for the glucosuria is a proximal tubular dysfunction. So you need to start thinking of Fanconi's. In addition, if you want to do more investigation and you see that they're hypophosphatemic, hypomagnesemic, and they have an increase in uric acid excretion, well, then this is another sign that you might be dealing with a patient with Fanconi syndrome. So moving on to the loop of Henley. Loop of Henley is probably one of the more famous of all the tubules for the reason that loop diuretics act here. About 30 to 35% of the sodium is reabsorbed there. Similarly, about 40% of the potassium and chloride are reabsorbed there as well. 25% of water is reabsorbed there as well. Phosphorus, very insignificant. Magnesium, you do get a lot of paracellular reabsorption that happens there. And again, the magic of the loop of Henle has to do with the uh, secondary active transport that happens at the basolateral membrane, right? The cell becomes sodium deficient, so you're able to pull in sodium through the sodium potassium to chloride channel. Now, the loop of Henle also has two other channels. You have a chloride channel that has passive chloride transport and you have a ROMK channel that faces the apical membrane facing the tubular lumen. So what ends up happening is that with the sodium potassium ATPase you have sodium being pumped out, potassium being pumped in, and that's at the basolateral membrane. And now you have a sodium potassium 2 chloride channel that is pulling down its concentration gradient. Well the sodium gets pulled in because sodium is pumped out actively. Potassium is pulled in because even though the potassium is pumped in actively at the uh, sodium-potassium ATPase uh, receptor at the basolateral membrane, you also have a ROMK channel at the apical surface, which ends up pulling potassium out in, on its concentration gradient. So that's awesome. And then you also have a basolateral chloride channel. So when the chloride comes into the cell, the chloride is able to escape as well. Incidentally, because of the change in charge and so forth, you will also have significant paracellular reabsorption of magnesium and calcium. So one of the most important parts of the loop of Henle has to do with this countercurrent mechanism. And 
briefly, I'm going to talk about it, but what I'm probably going to end up doing is doing a separate talk just devoted to the countercurrent mechanism. And I'm going to try to upload a video as well while I draw it out because I feel that seeing a drawing of it will make a little bit more sense than listening to it via podcast. But briefly, as the filtrate passes through the proximal convoluted tubule and majority of the reabsorption occurs there, now you're falling into the loop of Henle. Now, the loop of Henle extends down into the medulla, and you have to think that the medulla is like a concentration gradient. Now, the nice thing to look at, to think about it is that you have these renal pyramids, right, in the gross section, and you have the cortical medullary junction. So as you're at the, since it's an inverted triangle, so if you're at the base of the triangle, which is at the top, you're at the lowest concentration of what the medulla has. And as you move closer to the point of the triangle, you become more and more concentrated. That's a way to remember it. So as the filtrate travels down the descending loop of Henle, it is impermeable to solute. So it's only permeable to water. So as it's moving down the concentration gradient, water is constantly being pulled out and it's being pulled out more and more aggressively as you're moving down. And it has to, because as you're pulling water out towards the base or towards the top of the cortical medullary junction, you're going to need a stronger osm to pull water out as you move towards that hairpin loop in the loop of Henle, which is this concentration gradient. Now, as you start turning the corner and you're maximally concentrated at the tip of the loop of Henle, which on a side note is pretty impressive because you can dilute and concentrate urine in a pretty wide range, basically an entire factor of 10. So at the cortical medullary junction, the osm is typically around 120 to 200, while at the tip of the longest loop of Henle, the osms in the medullary uh, interstitium is about 1200 milliosms per kg so quite concentrated and you need that to really pull out all that fluid now as you round the corner of the loop of henley and you're moving up well this also makes sense the tubule is no longer permeable to water and it only is permeable to solute so if you think about it this way if you have all these loops of henley in the medulla and you're constantly pulling out water well what are you doing you're diluting out that concentration gradient right so that 120 at the junction becomes 100 or if it's 200 becomes 150 whatever i'm making up numbers here and as you're going down you know the section that would be at 400 osms per kg is now let's say 200 osms per kg well, if that continuously happens, well, then you ruin your concentration gradient, which does happen in certain um, scenarios where there's uh, excessive loop diuretics involved. If we start developing hyponatremia, if we start uh, having a tea and toast diet, which we'll get into later. So you start diluting it out. Well, the only way to reestablish that gradient is to also have a section where you're adding solute back, which is what the ascending thick ascending limb is. And it's thick because now you have cells that have secondary active uh, transport capabilities. So now you're pulling in all this solute from whatever is in the tubule and you're using the basolateral membrane and the um, chloride channel and as well as paracellular movement to put everything back into that interstitium. Now most of that is going to get reabsorbed in the vasa recta that's present so it can be returned back into circulation but this is where you reestablish that concentration gradient so as you're moving back up you're pulling out a lot 
and an area that's probably very dilute and you're pulling out less in an area that's not as dilute so your gradient changes so that's actually pretty interesting one of the conditions that we tend to see with um, disorders in the loop of Henle is barter syndrome so barter syndrome is a autosomal recessive disease and it characteristically characteristically presents with hypokalemia metabolic alkalosis and we'll talk about you know its counterpart which is Gittleman's which affects the distal convoluted tubule so barter syndrome acts just like a patient being on a loop diuretic they're hypotensive and they have electrolyte abnormalities so there's also a way to distinguish barter and Gittleman and that's based on calcium secretion so we'll touch on that a little bit later as well So one question for you, how does or how do diuretics cause hyponatremia and which ones will? I'm sure that you're going to say that, oh, thiazides cause hyponatremia. I guess my question is, do or does furosemide do the same? And the answer is no. And the reason being is where, what receptor is what receptor is blocked and what the location is. So what happens is this, if you're following the countercurrent mechanism and you're diluting out the medulla as you're going down the loop of Henle, and now you're gonna move up and you're trying to reestablish that solute that you just diluted in the interstitium, and you can't because the sodium chloride, the sodium potassium two chloride channel is blocked. Well, what's gonna end up happening? The medulla stays dilute. And now you have your next round of fluid comes through and it dilutes and then your next round of fluid comes through and it dilutes and at some point you're no longer able to pull fluid out of the loop of Henle because the medulla is too dilute you're not going to have that drive so what ends up happening is you have a lot of fluid in the tubular cells right or sorry within the lumen so now that fluid moves from the ascending loop of Henle into the distal convoluted tubule and the area that it crosses is the macula densa. Well, the macula densa senses flow, yes, but it also senses chloride. And since the concentration of chloride is gonna be low because you have an increase in intraluminal uh, intra fluid, sorry, you're gonna have an increase in intraluminal fluid then the chloride concentration is going to be low. So you're going to have RAS that's going to be on board. RAS, you know, causes vasoconstriction and all that other stuff that we talked about briefly, but it's also going to cause ADH release as well. So now ADH comes in, it's embeds in the collecting duct, and it's going to pull free water into the medulla because that's what it does. But the problem is if the medulla is already dilute, it's not going to have that much of a drive to pull in that fluid. So the urine composition of someone on a loop diuretic is going to be equivalent to half normal saline. You're gonna have a solute and water component, like an isotonic component, but you're also gonna have a lot of free water because you're not able to pull that water out of the lumen because the medulla is so dilute. So because you're losing free water and you're not able to reabsorb that free water, you're not going to develop hyponatremia. The only way this will occur is if you're adding back some sort of solute and 
you're going to have, it's going to be in the extreme sense. So it's very difficult to achieve that. On the flip side, if you're on a thiazide diuretic, which we're going to talk about next in the distal convoluted tubule, it's a little different because the concentration and of the loop of Henle is intact. So you're pulling out water, but you're giving solute back to reestablish that gradient. Now you are blocking reabsorption of sodium chloride in the distal convoluted tubule. So you're not able to reabsorb that isotonic fluid that's there because you're going to reabsorb sodium chloride. And with that, you're going to have passive reabsorption of water. So therefore, you're going to become volume deplete, which is the whole reason of why we give someone a loop diuretic. Well, becoming volume deplete causes what? Causes an activation in RAS, but that's the goal. So you do have a subclinical RAS activation. The problem is you also have ADH release in the process. Now, this doesn't cause a problem if we eat enough solute and we have a well-balanced diet and so forth. But if we don't, then the aquaporin channels are there. It is reabsorbing fluid. The problem is now we're not adding any solute or enough solute. And what ends up happening is you're slowly reabsorbing more water. And over time, you start developing hyponatremia. So hyponatremia will occur with the thiazide, but it will most likely not or never occur with furosemide or a loop diuretic. So that being said, let's talk about the distal convoluted tubule. So the distal convoluted tubule is responsible between 5 and 10% of sodium chloride reabsorption. So this is called the thiazide sensitive channel, or in other words, the sodium chloride co-transporter, right? And between 10 and 15% of calcium is also reabsorbed in this segment. Um, and it's an active process, unlike more of the passive process that occurs in the proximal tubule where 70% of calcium is co-transported passively with sodium. So calcium enters the tubule cells via specific receptors and magnesium also enters the cells via specific receptors that we won't even get to at this point. So as I mentioned, the collecting duct, the urine composition that will be produced will be more an isotonic type of urine composition. So at an osm range equivalent to what is what your serum osm is. So by losing an isotonic fluid, you're improving blood pressure. That's the whole concept of how diazide diuretics work and why they work so well and why they're listed as one of the first line drugs. So moving into the collecting duct, now we have two specific cells that are there. We have the principal cells and the intercalated cells. And to make things even more complicated, we have the alpha intercalated cell and then the beta intercalated cell. So in the principal cells, all cells in the all tubular cells i should say respond to flow as well as concentration of solute so if you have a loop diuretic on and you're blocking the ascending loop of henle you're going to have an increased flow in the distal convoluted tubule as well as an increased flow in the collecting duct so we're going to talk about diuretics later in way more detail on how this all happens but if you ever wondered why you develop hypokalemia in aggressive diuresis, this is why, and why you also develop um, metabolic alkalosis. So as you have increased flow passing through the collecting duct, it stimulates the receptors. So we have a epithelial sodium channel called ENAC for short, 
right? And this is the channel that is also activated and upregulated when aldosterone is present, right? So with the influence of aldosterone, we have cyclic AMP. Cyclic AMP goes and pushes the ENAC channel to be reabsorbed or to be embedded in the um, luminal membrane. And then we have sodium reabsorption. With sodium reabsorption, we have water reabsorption as well. Now, with sodium reabsorption, we do have a chain in the, change in the electrochemical gradient inside the cell. So what ends up happening is you're going to have a ROMK channel that's present, and then you're going to have also a MAXI-B channel that's present. Well, ROMK is open and it lets potassium out. What also ends up happening is that if there's an increased flow, we need to get that potassium out fast because the ENAC channel is going to be reabsorbing as fast as possible. What also ends up happening is based on the increased flow, you're going to have more ENAC channels embedded because the kidney wants to maintain homeostasis. It doesn't want to lose anything. So now that you have more channels embedded in the apical membrane, you're going to have more sodium pulled in. By default, you're going to have to spit out that potassium. So yes, you're blocking potassium reabsorption in the ascending limb, but you're also spitting out potassium later on from a completely separate mechanism and you overall become potassium deplete. Now, what also ends up happening here is in the intercalate. So that happens in the principal cell. So in the intercalated cell, you have your alpha and then you have your beta. Your alpha deals with hydrogen release and your beta deals with bicarbonate. So what ends up happening with the alpha is the potassium, as it's being released in the, um, in the luminal fluid, it gets reabsorbed in the intercalated cell and a countercurrent mechanism and hydrogen gets released. So not only do you lose volume by aggressive diuresis, which causes a contracture alkalosis because bicarbonate is dispersed in total body water. If your total body water is elevated, you're going to have more bicarbonate present. But if you quickly remove that total body water or you affect the total body water, well, the concentration of bicarb is higher until recycling or loss is achieved by the kidney, which takes about one to two days. But what also ends up happening is you end up losing more hydrogen. So as you pull in a lot of sodium and you're pushing out a lot of potassium, you're recycling that potassium, at least some of it, and you're spitting out more hydrogen. So by losing that acid, you also develop a metabolic alkalosis. So if you think about it, if you have an active channel, right, which you would have in Little Syndrome, or you have a Con Syndrome, or you have a hyperaldo picture, and you have maximum concentration of these ENAC channels or overactive ENAC channels, then the typical presentation is hypertension because you're pulling in salt and water. You're going to have hypokalemia or at least the lower end of normal, if not below normal. And you're going to have metabolic alkalosis present. So this all fits based on how this works. So finally, let's talk about ADH. So ADH is synthesized in the supraoptic and paraventricular nuclei of the hypothalamus. So it's synthesized up there, travels down its little highway in the pituitary stalk, and lands in the posterior pituitary. Now, ADH is a hormone. And like all hormones, hormones are released based on either specific mechanisms or general mechanisms. And I call this the shotgun approach. So there are many conditions where the body falls into a stressful state, and it could be not really emotional, but at times, but mostly physical stress. 
whether it's volume depletion, whether it's pain, whether it's nausea, generalized like discomfort. And this stressful response is a shotgun approach. And what happens is just like a shotgun and all these beads shoot everywhere, you're going to have a massive discharge of all compounds. You're going to have stress hormones released. You're going to have compounds like ADH release. Everything's being released because the body knows that there's something wrong and it needs to try to do what it can to conserve as much as possible. One of the big things is it needs to conserve volume. And by conserving volume, it can guarantee perfusion to the organs, more specifically perfusion to the heart and the brain. So this is what ADH is for. As you're losing volume or stress, because sometimes the body can't tell the difference, then you want to replenish that volume. And that volume can either be in the form of free water or it can be in the form of isotonic where it's salt and water, or I should say sodium and water. So you have this discharge of ADH. So ADH is discharged in response to volume depletion, right, due to barrier receptors. It's um, in response to a change in osmotic concentration. And it's also released in a stressful response, pain, nausea, sometimes medications can release ADH. It can either lower the threshold or cause an inappropriate discharge of ADH. And what ends up happening is the kidney reabsorbs sodium and water, and it also reabsorbs water. So in totality, you have, you can argue, if you want a simplistic drawing, two molecules of water to one molecule of sodium. So it disproportionately pulls in more water than sodium and this is why hyponatremia can occur in some of these situations so when ADH is released right ADH um, is released via uh, three types of receptors v1a v1b and v2 right v1a causes vasoconstriction by increasing vascular smooth muscle and intracellular calcium concentration v1b right, releases ACTH, right, in the pituitary gland, and V2 is found in the principal cells and the collecting duct. So when that is um, acted upon, cyclic AMP is activated and pushes in the aquaporin channels into the membrane, and this is what pulls water down its concentration gradient. So let's talk about some clinical notes regarding diuretics, Tube, uh, the distal tubules, vasopressin, and so forth. So I already hinted at some of this before. So the mechanism of all diuretics is to prevent tubular sodium reabsorption. So both diazides and loop diuretics achieve this and by default lead to hypokalemia and metabolic alkalosis. So as I mentioned before, as you have more sodium flowing through the distal parts of the nephron, right, tubular cells try to reclaim the sodium. And by doing so, you have a loss of positive charge in the lumen. And by doing so, you have a push of potassium being pushed out, right, by the principal cells, as well as hydrogen in the alpha intercalated cells. So we already talked about that. And also with intravascular volume contraction, you know, because of diuretics and so forth, this also contributes to um, potassium and hydrogen loss due to the effect of aldosterone. So by flow, this happens, and by RAS activation, this will happen. Because with volume depletion, which is the goal of all diuretics, you're going to have a sub 
preclinical or a smoldering RAS release, which aldosterone is going to be pulling these mechanisms as well. Now, we do have case-bearing diuretics, and these do the opposite. They lead to hyperkalemia and metabolic acidosis. So spironolactone competes with aldosterone, right, for the binding of the mineral corticoid receptor. But amylaride triamterene block ENAC directly. And the result effect is the inhibition of potassium and hydrogen secretion. So this is why you have potassium sparing or an increase in intracellular potassium and therefore a retention of hydrogen. Now, you also have effects on calcium. So let's take a step back. And we talked about paracellular reabsorption of calcium in the loop of Henle. So this is dependent on an electric uh, gradient that occurs. So loop diuretics, by inhibiting the sodium-potassium 2-chloride transporter, inhibit the generation of this gradient. So hence, it prevents the reabsorption of calcium, right, And in that segment. But on the other hand, a thiazide diuretic, it increases proximal sodium and water reabsorption due to volume depletion, and it leads to an increase in passive proximal calcium reabsorption. Thus, if you have furosemide, helps with calcium excretion in the urine, but a thiazide decreases urinary calcium. And this also segues into these genetic abnormalities. So if you have barter syndrome, barter syndrome is just like being on a loop diuretic. And by being on that, you have an increase in calcium in the urine, while a thiazide, and that's Gittleman's, acts like a thiazide, you have a decrease in urinary calcium excretion. So that's how you can tell the difference between barters and um, Gittleman's. So lithium. Lithium is interesting because lithium causes diabetes insipidus by causing decreased expression of the aquaporin genes. So by inhibiting the ability of the aquaporins to be embedded in the um, in the membrane, you're not retaining any of that water and you develop diabetes insipidus. The interesting thing is you can mitigate um, lithium toxicity if you start using amylaride. Lithium, because of its valence, is very similar to sodium, so it ENAC tends to pull lithium intracellularly and that's where it has the effect on the aquaporin channels. But if you compete with lithium and you give a patient amylaride, well, then you're going to decrease amylaride reabsorption in the cells and hopefully delay any sort of diabetes insipidus that will occur or stop it altogether. So hopefully you had an opportunity to review this a couple times and please do review this as much as you need to. Dealing with the tubules is very interesting. It's very interesting to kind of piece together how the, and all the mechanisms work. And I'm going to refer back to this um, podcast numerous times when we talk about different conditions and we talk about drug interaction and so forth. So thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Again, sign up for the Facebook group and please visit www.nephacks.com. I'll be talking to you soon.